My name is Justin Gage, and you're tuned in to the Aquarium Drunkard Transmissions Podcast with your host, Jason Hilder. Welcome back to Aquarium Drunkard Transmissions. I hope your autumnal drift towards Halloween is rolling along nicely. This week on the show, we are chatting once again with Mitch Horowitz, a cult scholar, practitioner, and historian. We've had Mitch on a number of times, once a year or so for the last few, and I'll confess that's for a few simple reasons. One, I just love listening to the guy riff, and two, I find a ton of value in his work. His latest is called Modern Occultism, History, Theory, and Practice. It's a sprawling secret history in the same vein as his 2009 book, Occult America. And it explores how wisdom and philosophies gleaned from the Hermetica, Gnostic Gospels, Kabbalah, and many, many other esoteric systems made its way from ancient and often fragmented pasts to profoundly inform the modern age. He explores how it illuminated secret societies and motivated renegade thinkers all along the way. Our talk? Well, it's all over the place, from Ayn Rand and Steve Ditko's objectivism to UFOs to Jack Parsons, the pioneering father of modern rocketry, who is also a practicing magician, one-time Marxist, and famously died at 37 in an explosion while preparing materials for a film set. Anytime Mitch is on, we end up covering a lot of ground, and thankfully this episode is no different. Listening back, I hear in my own line of questioning a sort of thread. I'm interested in how, in our hyper-individualized moment, we can come to think about the communal and the individual in less binary or dualistic terms, less one or the other. Mitch and I come at these topics from different angles at times, but I think that what we're both chasing after is a sort of grace, the ability to see what good can be extracted from the outre or the out there, uh, and also just, of course, the power of fascination. That's really another thread that really seemed very evident to me. So I hope you will enjoy it. Mitch is a frequent guest on Coast to Coast AM, so think of this as one of those kinds of transmissions episodes the kind that lean into that feel. We don't end up talking so much about music, but I think it's all worth it anyway. Before we roll tape, a reminder, Transmissions is brought to you by listeners like yourself who pledge their support on Patreon. For exclusive audio notes, radio extras, and much more, check out Aquarium Drunkard on Patreon and help us continue creating the work that we do. Without further chatter, here's Mitch Horowitz on Transmissions, after a brief musical interlude from Frank Mastin, whose music soundtracks every episode of this show. Thanks so much, Frank. It's been an absolute pleasure having your tunes on all season long, and I look forward to hearing new stuff soon, I hope. All right, here it is, Mitch Horowitz on Transmissions.
Well, so that's a, you know, I, I wanted to start there um, actually before we get into the sort of content of yep. of your book. I wanted to talk with you. I saw you posted that you kind of recently finished doing the audio version, and um, I've enjoyed a number of your books in that format uh, mm-hmm. as well as print. But you're somebody who clearly relishes reading their work, I think, and it comes through in the dynamic and considered expression that you bring. But I wonder, are you somebody, do you enjoy the process of recording uh, the audiobooks? Oh, very much. Um, being able to bring an inflection to the characters and the statements and the stories is a huge, huge pleasure for me. Yeah, Being in front of that microphone, if I am engaged with the material, time just stands still. So I absolutely love it. Yeah, I feel it's a huge privilege. And I, I just got to record my very first book, Occult America, which came out in 2009. When that initially came out, it was narrated by an actor. And... Um, I just didn't have the industry credit at that time to do it. And through a, a varying twist and turn of events, the license came up for renewal uh, from the audio company that had licensed it from Random House. Random pulled back the license and asked me to re-record it, and they're re-releasing it for this Halloween. So mm. that was thrilling. And that was a dream come true because I always wanted to narrate that book. And I I, I had it uh, in the back of my mind as something that I wanted to do before I check out. And um, yeah. I was just thrilled. So so that's going to be coming out for Halloween. And uh, that was uh, a period of, of three back to back sessions. And it was really wonderful. Yeah, that's fantastic. I wanted I, I, I wanted to. Uh, well, you also, in addition to your own books, you've read other people's books, other new thought thinkers and oh, yeah. other things. Is it a situation where that tie or that pull in a personal direction, is that sort of required even for that sort of work? Could you, for example, if somebody said, hey, here's our budget and it was within your uh, normal fee, could you read a book you didn't necessarily care about? You know what I mean? Yeah, it certainly helps, as with any other <laughs> yeah. engagement, if I really care about it. For the most part, books that I have been asked to narrate that are not my own, right. I I do care about where I can find some point of connection with it. Um, on occasion, I will find myself... Um, not really simpatico with the subject matter and all of its fine points, but usually I have enough agreement with the general outlook of the book or the general values so that I can do it. But the the, the sessions, of course, that I most treasure are when I'm reading something that's personally meaningful to me. So if it's Neville Goddard or um, someone that just has like a certain deep personal resonance with me, yeah. obviously yeah. that's the optimal situation. Yeah, for sure. I... I, I, you mentioned, of course, that you had recorded the new audiobook edition of your your first book, uh, yeah. Occult, modern occultism, history, theory, and practice. In a lot of ways, it feels to me modern occultism to me feels as much like a, a sequel to Occult America in some ways as uh, 
as anything you've written. I don't know how that sits with you because you're covering obviously a much wider uh, historical time frame, but doing similarly uh, a lot of synthesis and and condensing and narrative stringing together. You know, so it really does feel like those two are are rooted in a way. Well, it was interesting completing the new book, Modern Occultism, both in terms of its writing and its audio recording, mm -hmm. and then very soon thereafter going into a studio to reread Occult America, right. which is a book that's now 15 years old. Yeah. And yeah. I was very proud of, of reading Occult America as I went through it. I was proud of the writing. I was proud of the research. And I would say, overall, I agree uh, with all the general values that I promulgated in the book. But I could really also see changes in myself, my perspective, my approach. I would say uh, among those changes is that when I was writing Occult America, uh, I, I, it was 15 plus years ago. And I think I personally was much more attached to an Abrahamic or Judeo-Christian view of the world. And that probably colored some of my uh, choices and the the eddies and the and the plateaus that I dwelled upon in the book. And that has changed because my search has changed. And I have come to see at this juncture the Abrahamic worldview as a con culturally conditioned worldview uh, like any other, no more or less possessed of absolute truth than the the points of of a of a compass depending upon where you're standing and 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 one's proclivity to say well this direction points up north this direction points south down which is entirely conditional and i wouldn't ever go so far as to say that there aren't universal truths within the abrahamic uh, uh tradition but i also see how it hems those of us in the West who have grown up within it, no different from people anywhere in the world who have grown up within a tradition for centuries and centuries, to think of it in terms of parameters and categorical absolutes, especially to think in terms of there being these Aristotelian divisions in everything. There's God and there's Satan, there's heaven and there's hell, there's higher and there's lower, and there's good and bad that I as an observer are capable of judging and evaluating and meeting out treatment towards, including punishments. And I, I break with that point of view, I rupture with that point of view, because I think it's very limiting to the search. That doesn't mean that I have an idea about how we should change policies or laws in our country. I'm I'm not interested in that. Um, obviously, those are necessary things, but that's not the area in which I'm digging for my gold. The area in which I'm digging for my gold is is a search for the truth of self, and that I think almost requires dispensing with a map because that map will lead you exactly where cultural conditioning informs us to go, even if we tinker with the vocabulary terms a little bit. Right. So I had much more of an Abrahamic or Judeo-Christian orientation when I was working on that book, which regardless of one's intentions does inform uh, choices. And, and I also feel that I omitted certain people from uh, that book because I think I didn't fully resonate with their ideas and didn't fully give due and proper credit to their importance within the development 
of occultism as a thought system, in particular, I think of Anton LaVey and Jack mm. Parsons, on whom I spend a lot of time in the new book. It was easier to exclude certain European voices um, like Aleister Crowley. Not sure. exclude. I mean, that's too strong a word. I'm not... Um, running a political party, you know, but <laughs> it was, it was, it was easier to, to bypass the full import of certain European figures, just because I was focusing on the American occult and the manner in which the broader culture had been shaped. But I still feel the loss of certain very important figures in that book. And I, I make up for that loss, I think, in modern occultism, where I give very full-throated treatment to Aleister Crowley, uh, Austin Osmond Spare, uh, Charles Fort, and for that matter, um, figures who I just didn't give full exploration to the first time around, like Alice Bailey, who was who's an offshoot from theosophy. Um, uh, organizations like the Process Church, Atopi, Michael Aquino. Uh, these are figures and organizations on whom I spend a lot of time in the new book. And it was so gratifying because I really held my own feet to the fire and said, um, there are no shortcuts and there, there are no sort of uh, thematic sleights of hand that are are going to allow me to, to, to take a shortcut. I'm holding myself to the, the strictest and, and, and I hope uh, highest possible standard. Plus, I want to. I, I want to explore um, the thought systems of Topi and Process and Aquino and Anton and, and Parsons. And I, I've come to love these figures and organizations for various reasons. And uh, and that's on display in the new book. It's a richer experience, I think, than Occult America. The, the Occult America might be more of a campfire story. The storytelling in Occult America is very strong, and that's something I love about it. But the new book is more thorough. Yeah, yeah. No, I get what you're saying. I, I'll note that Occult America kicked off a period of intense and continuing uh, fascination with the Mormon church, the LDS, Latter-day Saints, uh, a, a religious group that I always grew up around members of, you know, but it maintained a certain m mystery to me. Uh, I probably yeah. could have just asked, but I was afraid of getting proselytized, too, um, which was not what I'm interested in. Nonetheless, <laughs> I find it such a fascinating field of inquiry, and also— Something that this new book does, as well as as your previous work, uh, it speaks to the way that the dividing lines between belief systems or thoughts or influences or philosophies are uh, much more porous than one it often, you know, considers. Because we tend to think in terms, like you said, of sort of black and white and a sort of more um, something that 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 struggle expresses itself now in uh, the way that some of the figures you write about in the book, not universally beloved nor, uh, you know, always agreed with figures, obviously. So yeah. there's yeah. there's even the, the question that we have now of, well, is it okay to engage with certain things, you know? And I, do, I don't mean to, in no way, I'm not interested in that uh, sort of the rote woke versus anything yeah. else. Because one thing I really respect about your work is the absence of sort of pussyfooting around that stuff, and yeah. uh, and just the frank expression when when there are things to be noted, you just got to note them, and we have to do that, you know, because we don't want these uh, uh, 
we don't want to lose the baby with the bathwater or something like that. If that, yeah, I don't yeah. know, I don't know how that, how that, you know. No, I feel, I feel very strongly that that an artist has to be approached on the best of his or her work. So, you know, Crowley is an easy example. I mean, Crowley was, he was, he was disloyal. He was cruel. <laughs> he was bigoted. He was an asshole on almost every conceivable level, uh-huh. and he was a genius. And you know, the man just mm-hmm. created so much. Um, out of some very rare threads that existed coming out of the occult revival. And uh, I mean, he he readapted and in many ways constructed right. ceremonial magic as a thought system, at least in as much as Joseph Smith constructed Mormonism, at least in as much as Mrs. Eddy, Mary Baker Eddy constructed Christian science. And I I I would have to say that uh, and for that matter, I would say the same of, of Michael Aquino in, in terms of what he did. I think of Aquino as one of the in, most most intellectually vibrant theorists of spirituality that was produced uh, in 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 the uh, uh, immediate modern age. And um, I think that 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 we have to uh, abide artists of all kinds on their their finest work i'm not going to refuse to drive over a suspension bridge because the engineer was a real asshole <laughs> it may be worthy of acknowledgement but i'm not going to go on a brief against suspension bridges right and and we have to look so much of what ties us into knots culturally today could be resolved i believe by by thoroughness if 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 it requires making note of an individual's career from some personal perspective, which, by the way, it does not always. I mean, it, it certainly does not always. But if there's some unique reason for that, do so. But but then also consider the person's work and the value and the beauty of it. I think thoroughness could resolve a lot of what twists us into knots uh, culturally. There's no barrier to talking about a person or a movement or a thing yeah. because it's checkered. No, for, for sure. You talk about how you know Anton. Uh, you you when you you talk about Anton Levey in the book, and you talk, and this is a, th- a thread through your work that I know is very important to you. Uh, that say Levey defines Satanism as I think you put it an ethic of radical nonconformity and defiant selfhood. Um, yeah. I know that's something that you vibe with that that's a that's something that is important to you and i want i'd love to try and talk a little bit about what role the self plays in the collective sense because i feel like you know something that you i remember you saying in a previous talk that we had that Maybe now we're not so much in the time of great teachers, but a sort of more, yeah. sort of a more communal moment. And when I think about, you know, climate change or the vast changes in society that seem that are that are coming and that are in effect now, things always are in flux. But it seems to me important that we have a sense of collective solidarity right now with you know each other because it's in danger of eroding, you know, in a lot of ways for, uh, because it's just under threat, you know? So that's one side of it. But I often feel like when people talk about individualism, it's as if there cannot be both of those things, right? It turns into another dualistic thing. 
And to me, it's really crucial to s- somehow kind of s- get around that because I know like somebody like Ayn Rand, you know, whose work I read when I was very young and, um, and it, elements of it, of course, resonated with me. Uh, there are, there are elements that resonate. Nonetheless, I have come to view the Ayn Rand philosophy as potentially quite damning and, and as we see it often expressed in political practice, it's fucked up, right? So it's sort of like, it forces you to deal with that. But I'm just curious if you could speak to that notion of how the inner and the other and all of these things are not necessarily, we're not talking about competing ideologies necessarily. Is that fair to put it that way? No, I agree with that. And I think that it's interesting how we come at questions of policy, because in terms of, say, global warming or healthcare or whatever issues it is that we need to deal with as a as a human community, every policy is some sort of a delivery system. And I wish, I wish there were a way of taking the emotion out of it. But that would be like saying, gee, wouldn't it be great if we could take emotion out of money and then our financial decisions would be rational? It's impossible. Wouldn't it be great if we could take emotion out of sex because then we'd make rational decisions? Well, good luck. Um, At the same time, I mean, I, 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 you know, and this might be just a chimera on my part. It may be impossible because emotion rules the world. But for example, I, I have no health insurance right now. Mm. So I'd like to believe that even, even if I had health insurance, I think that we as a nation, I'm speaking in the United States, we need a national health insurance plan. There's probably 10 different versions that could work. Uh, they would do some good things. They would do some bad things. They would work in some ways. They would fail in some ways. You go to Canada, they have a national health insurance plan. It works really well in some ways. It works poorly in other ways. You got people who are happy. You got people who are unhappy. Overall, the general society wants to keep the status quo, including the conservatives. Nobody says, let's get rid of the national health service. So I look at that and I'm like, that's a good policy. I would like that policy here in America, but we can't have that policy because we get all emotional, and when Obama was pitching his health care plan, people are hooting about death panels, and it's all crap and nonsense and fantasy. Um, but when has crap and nonsense and fantasy not had played a big part in our politics? So it's like complaining about the weather, you know. Um, so a person can 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 advocate for a certain policy because it's just a good, effective delivery system. You know, this will help. And there's 10 other policies that may be necessary that one could talk the same way about. At the same time, none of that precludes a person from walking a path of radical selfhood. That's what Anton LaVey did. That's what Michael Aquino did. You don't like Michael Aquino's appearance? Well, you know, don't fucking go to Thanksgiving at his house. But the man did devise his own total environment, as Anton put it. And I want people to feel the freedom to do that within their search because I find that the search gets incredibly limited because these these cultural parameters that we've grown up with are so overwhelmingly powerful that they 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 render our search stillborn before it's even started. Like for example, the notion that um, and I've written about this before, of course, but the the notion eminent from the Vedic 
traditions and to a great extent the Abrahamic traditions that non-attachment is a good thing that this thing called non-attachment is supposed to be a, a goal an aim a solution I don't agree with that because I have not been able to verify that in my own experience uh, uh, people want to get things done in the world and it's absolutely necessary to get these things done in order to feel a sense of selfhood and when we speak in terms of non-attachment we are importing a principle an idea that that emanated from a certain time and place in human history that emanated many 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 hundreds of years ago from a certain set of geographical and cultural uh, uh touchstones and and there may have been very good reasons for that and there may be truth to that and yet i challenge that truth and i challenge it standing only on the foundation of my own search as a sensitive being. Mm -hmm. I'm not telling anybody else what to do, and I'm not telling somebody to, you know, do things this way or that way, but it's hilarious that I will get emails and I will hear from people who actually argue to persuade me of non-attachment with no set sense of irony whatsoever. Right. No sense of irony <laughs> whatsoever. You should be non-attached. You yeah. should be non-attached it's it's better and mm -hmm. they do this without any sense of irony and it just demonstrates the point that philosophies seek primacy and that's okay yeah as long as there's nothing coercive about it yeah my philosophy is verification not as lip service but as actual as possible and i i i don't want to absorb points of view that i feel are going to uh determine where this road goes for me i'm i'm speaking as frankly as i can uh from the perspective of the search um i can certainly say that uh you know for example we are we are taught especially apropos of christian tradition that forgiveness is a primary value and there there may be value to that and i'm i'm not trying to to, to paint with too broad, broad a brush, but several years ago, I found myself questioning that. Is, is that true? Is is forgiveness this keystone to um, whatever it is that the individual is looking for? I'm not sure that that's true. I've actually found separation uh, has been much more powerful in my life. In fact, on a palpable level, I'm much happier now than I was in previous years uh, I believe partly on account of absolutely separating from cruel people and burning the bridges behind me. Whether or not that involves forgiveness uh, is 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 an adjunct question. I mean, it, it could. I was, doesn't necessarily <laughs> yeah, I was going to say a, a, a good way to forgive somebody is to not ever have to deal with them again, I find right. sometimes. Get the fuck rid of them. <laughs> and, uh, but, you know, I don't say that to be glib. I mean, I say no, that I, because... I know, yeah. You know, like I meet people who tell me that their in-laws, for example, are cruel to them. And, and, and yet they've never given themselves the liberty. They've never given themselves the benefit of at least considering, well, what would it look like? What would a world look like where you had absolutely no contact with your in-laws unless they behaved accordingly? And people you know they immediately remove that option from their roster because well you know i want my kids to be around them and my husband will get mad and this that all that may be true you know and there's going to be consequences and sometimes the consequences may be too great to bear but at least give yourself the benefit of really considering that because 
my experience has been that our perceived consequences are usually wildly exaggerated compared to what actually occurs. Yeah, which is a, a kind of fear. It's a there's a there's, yeah. a there's a fear to it, and and it's it's like we're coming from this time right now. Um, and you know, I really did get into your work over the course. I mean, I had read Occult America before, but d- deeper over the course of the pandemic. And I think about mm-hmm. the pandemic being this time that is. On one hand, it deeply atomized us, and we're all feeling very individualized, you know, because there, it involved a, a period for most people of separation from loved ones or communities that they cared about, not going to shows, you know, not going to see concerts or movies. Lots of I started going back to the movies like 2021. I was ready to go back to the movies, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but many people I know weren't ready, and I, you know, of course, respect and understand it. But we're coming from this time where it, it almost does feel like as a society, we're all just re-engaging with each other and we're so confused by the process. You see people taking out their phones at movies. You see people throwing objects at pop stars, you know, these things that people are doing. And you're, and you're just like, what, what, is, what is this? And it's I do think it comes at least partially from a confusion of being together, right? And so... I feel like sometimes when people hear a person talk about individualism, they slip into those road assumptions that you're sort of talking about, which is like, well, this person is some sort of Ayn Randy libertarian, you know, uh, don't tread on me, but I can tread on you type or something, right? Yeah, I mean, and I'm glad you're bringing up Rand because... I admire Rand as a cultural figure. I have no doubt that she was obnoxious and difficult to be around. And I know that there was a kind of personality cult that assembled around her. Not that unusual, by the way. There are personality cults that settle around a lot of philosophers, psychologists, artists. Maybe hers was particularly heavy. And I also recognize the extremity of her ideas. Uh, I mean, she was so scarred by the experience of Soviet communism Mm-hmm. that she viewed anything that was not immediately identifiable as 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 fr- free market oriented as some sort of collectivism that was leading ultimately to the gulag and i reject that entirely sure uh entirely and and i think that the the great tragedy of rand's life is that she was so damaged by having grown up as a girl within Stalinist uh, Russia, and understandably so, Mm -hmm. that she slid so far over into extremity that it's almost impossible to communicate about anything. And and, and her her absolutism um, can feel almost suffocating at a certain point. All of that said, all of that said, she was a self-made person in the same way that Madame H.P. Blavatsky was a self-made person, another Russian woman, you know. Uh, that, mean, nobody, when, that nobody has any issues with. <laughs> right, right, right. And 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 Rand, um, she huh. leaves uh, the, 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 the Soviet Union as a teenager, finds her way to, to Hollywood, defects, becomes a screenwriter, in a language that was not her own, in a language mm-hmm. that she didn't grow up with, becomes one of the best-selling novelists of the 20th century, becomes a personality who is interviewed uh, far and wide. And and there is a protean quality to Rand that I find just absolutely extraordinary. 
And in the same way that Blavatsky said, I am going to completely recreate myself and in so doing, project my outlook onto the world. That's exactly what Rand did. Yeah. And I yeah. understand why so many people in our society are, well, I won't, I won't say I understand the hostility because I think that's a lot of just emotional excess and, and sanctimoniousness. But <laughs> I understand that people in our society feel like, we already have an excess of this. We already have um, a kind of excess of the mythos of the great individual who's going to who's going to uh, 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 step over all the proles and 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 achieve what he or she wants. So yeah. okay, I get that. I understand that. But I also understand the uncompromising frustration she felt for uh, um, corruption for cowardice uh for for cowardly compromise um for um a, a cravenness whereby one didn't honor or explore his or her own ideas on on his or her own terms so i would say that i am not a randian when it comes to economics by any stretch i am not an objectivist mm -hmm. but i can appreciate the the self-creation and the protean qualities that she brought into her work. And I I think I, I, I just feel a great, great cultural sympathy for her uh as a figure without buying into um necessarily her uh, uh economic slate, which I don't think is workable, uh, just in the same way that I don't think absolute collectivism is is workable. I think we as a human community simply need to be flexible, and there's a point at which a policy without flexibility becomes tyranny, and I'm not down for it, obviously. Putting your music up online is not always the easiest thing in the world to figure out, but DistroKid makes music distribution fun and easy with unlimited uploads and... As an artist, you keep 100% of your royalties and earnings. A million plus artists rely on DistroKid to get their music into Spotify, Apple Music, YouTube, TikTok, Tidal, Instagram, all the major streaming services. You can use it to edit your lyrics and your song credits. So important in the internet age to let people know the kind of people you're collaborating with. And uh, DistroKid makes that easy. You can also see all your stats from the streamers and, of course, add a credit card to purchase album extras. The DistroKid app is available now on iOS and Android. Go to the app or Play Store to download it. If somehow we were to erase Ayn Rand from uh, history, we might not get Steve Ditko, which is a difficult toss-up for me, you know? Boom. <laughs> Steve, Boom. Steve Ditko, somebody... <laughs> I hope people don't take me all that seriously. I will say Steve Ditko is, of course, one of my favorite artists, one of the true greats in the comic book field, and an ardent uh, objectivist whose own hardline stances sometimes, one might say, compromises his perhaps writing. Uh, 
but it doesn't compromise the drawings. That's for sure. You know, right. and Steve <laughs> could be very inconsistent. You know, later in Steve's career, he insisted he wouldn't draw werewolves or vampires because he wouldn't have any traffic <laughs> with the supernatural. And it's like, dude, you co-created Doctor Strange. I mean, yeah. you know, can we please? Uh, just sorry, my 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 guy. Yeah, you're why everybody wants to move to New York and hover around with their third eye open. Yeah. <laughs> yes, I certainly do. And, uh, and, and and so there was a lack of flexibility in Steve, but there was a greatness to him. I don't know this, but I am told that Steve refused money from the Spider-Man and Doctor Strange movies, even though he needed the money because he just didn't like the movies. And that is a very, uh, that is a very Randian objectivist thing to do. So there is this, there's this, there's this romance, there's this nobility that may be contradicted, that may be inflexible, that may be hypocritical, but it's the ideal that she extols in her work. And I am unaverse, I am unaverse to exploring that ideal, because if people can explore the ideal of whatever the opposite is, you know, the people like to think that they're altruistic, they like to think that they're empathic, they like to think that they're self-sacrificing. Well, you can also explore and consider the benefits of of the romantic ideal, the heroic ideal, which is what animated her work. Yeah. You know, I wouldn't be as reductive to state it this way, but in the book, you also talk about, you talk about a number of figures, people like Blavatsky, um, but I'm I'm going to focus a little more. You, you say something, you quote uh, P.D. Opensky's, uh, his, his something that Gurdjieff said, where he basically said, in the search of the miraculous, uh, the truth can only come to people in the form of a lie. And something that's yeah. very interesting to me is there are figures in the book, I think of Carlos Castaneda, especially, you know? Uh, yeah. Somebody who... I especially love Eric Davis waxing about him uh, because it's just... I was not around for that craze, right? The craze of his book, but I just can view it with a sense of talk about romance, right? Just this like incredible thing. But I'm interested in that notion um, of the truth coming to us in the form of a lie. Or maybe we could say instead of lie, a fable or a fiction or uh, maybe a a stance taken but not always lived up to, you know, which it feels false in some way. But all of that, what I mean to say is, you know, what is there to be gained by sort of wading into those murky waters uh, as you have so often done? Well, that's that's a really interesting question. Um, one could ask, for example, why am I dedicated to Carlos's work when we know pretty damn well the forensics of Carlos's life and that he falsified his biography? Yeah. Why am I dedicated to um, Anton LaVey, for example, when we know that based on, well, based on every piece of empiricism that I can lay my hands on, Anton falsified the story about playing the devil in Rosemary's Baby. In fact, the devil was played by a now deceased character actor named Clay Turner. And uh, Whoops. I got pictures of him in the next room in the devil suit. So it's like, um, uh, it's as empirical as I can get. Um, why am I dedicated to the thought of... Uh, <clears throat> Oh, the, 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 there was another such figure I was going to mention. Um, 
Oh, well, you know, Rand herself, you know, for example, uh, I've just gone through a, a whole range of criticisms of Rand, the personality cult around <laughs> her, the the excess, the lack of flexibility. Why? You know, why why these figures? Uh, 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 certainly, I could I could turn my affections to uh, uh, other figures, you know, a, a Ralph Waldo Emerson or a, a more authentic representative of Native American shamanism than 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 Carlos. Um, OK, you know. Uh, turn my attention to Nietzsche wasn't a, you know perfect, but perhaps had fewer uh, evident flaws than than Anton LaVey did, or at least they haven't come down to us. Um, so why, you know, wh why why spend time on why defend these extreme figures? I think I can only say that I find beauty in their work. I find an a, a, an overwhelming aesthetic appeal in their work. I I find that they're they're. Okay, Gurdjieff called it a lie. Uh, uh, maybe I'll call it more gently a parabolic approach to living. And I will expose those things that are bullshit when they arise. I do it in the book. And not everybody's happy about it. But there it is. And I find in these figures a certain splendor, a certain beauty, a certain mm -hmm. aesthetic, a certain self-creation that I, I really just love. Um I read Crowley's Book of the Law, and I, okay, here's a perfect example. What Crowley expressed in the Book of the Law, he he contends that this came to him over three consecutive days in Cairo in channeling sessions, and and it came through a, a disincarnate intelligence called Iwas. Is any of that backstory necessary? Well, the drama of that backstory is the truth in the form of a lie, apropos of what Gurdjieff is saying, and the drama speaks to me, and there's splendor in it, and there's beauty in it, and it touches me in this resonant way that a taste touches you or that a caress touches you or that a, a note or bar of sound of music touches you. So I have to go with my passion for these figures while at the same time acknowledging who they were, what their shortcomings were. And I, I permit myself uh, uh, to go with that because I just, I, I love these figures. And, and, and again, when I say love, there's a palpable taste. There's a sensation that one can neither justify nor should, nor should. And uh, one of the things that Emerson writes about beautifully in his essay, Self-Reliance, also a very misunderstood piece of writing, um, is that um, right, he writes uh, something to this effect, write upon the doorposts of thy house, whim. I hope in the end point, it's something more than whim, but we have to be willing to honor these magnetic pulls yeah. and encourages the individual to seek out those forms of communication, art, writing, company that to which he or she is attracted, re requiring no explanation or justification. And if the individual runs or hides from those things, then he is hiding from his own nature. And I think we have a sense of where that ends. Yeah. And so, so there is an abandon, uh, there is a whimsy, but I hope, I hope, as Emerson wrote, it's ultimately a great deal more than whimsy in following one's proclivities, including, you know, re regarding these personas who have enriched my life. Yeah, yeah. No, that's fascinating, and it's great to think about. I know that's a huge part of your work is that drive to express yourself and i think that's partially one of the reasons why i enjoy your work as much as i do is because it's easy you're constantly reminding us that you're this is your take on it you know yeah. what i mean and <laughs> and that we are free to come up with our take and that we can borrow and 
uh, assemble from many different sources the tapestry that can make up our our lives, right? So, I mean, I think that that's... I think it's fascinating. I also think, I mean, it's just like with music, right? Like there are certain artists that people uh, just can't abide by culturally. There, are, and 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 I think that there's understandable reasons, and I think questions that are being asked right now are crucial. And yet, you know, uh, it's it it's hard to imagine a world where we write off Led Zeppelin entirely, you know, because of crappy things that those guys did, you know. Uh, well, that were similar to what other people were doing as well, you know. Right. Uh, you know, not not that that it's it's just the cultural milieu, and it's so easy to point at individuals versus perhaps coercive systems that are in place or bad, you know, things that reward that bad behavior. So I get it. I would say, and I think that's a very good point, and and I would say my testing ground for. when and whether the individual or at least i can immerse myself in someone's work even if i have deep misgivings about the artist behind the work is that are the things that i might find objectionable in the person a requisite to my entering his work and if the answer to that question is no which quite frankly it almost always is then i can i can find that entry uh, if Led Zeppelin did abusive things to people, they certainly aren't singing about it in Stairway to Heaven. <laughs> I don't I don't have to abide that behavior or that point of view to enter that work. Uh, I don't have to be anti-Semitic to enter Richard Wagner's operas. And in fact, it's famously quoted, perhaps overquoted, that Wagner insisted um, in Gerda Dermerung uh, or maybe Das Rheingold that there was to be no uh, stereotype in association with the Nibelung and this this underground race um, with associations that 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 may have um, been uh, anti-Semitic, but 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 he famously noted there's to be no stereotype, and so I think that we made a cultural decision around Wagner that he could be canonized even though he was an objectionable guy, and 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 I think that's a valid decision, and the. The same holds true for, I think, every every work that's created, as it does, by the way, for works of science or engineering or what have you. I mean, I'm sorry, you know, Philip Johnson, the architect, was a real asshole and a sympathizer mm-hmm. of the Third Reich, and he did create beauty in his buildings. I'm not going to bulldoze them because I object to him as a man. I would, If I were teaching a course in architecture, I would probably say beautiful, beautiful architect, by the way, a real asshole as a person, and it behooves the student of history to know that and to understand that. Um, it also behooves the student of history to understand what he did and to understand the um, <clears throat> the engineering and mathematical principles behind what he did so that you can do your own stuff. Again, thoroughness, thoroughness. Yeah. To me, that's the off-ramp from a lot of these knots. Yeah, <laughs> it's funny. The um, You spend a lot of the book talking about Jack Parsons, and one of my uh, favorite things that I, I, my wife and I went to Paris and Dublin earlier this summer. It was wonderful. Uh, mm-hmm. but I had so much time on the book, on the, the plane to read. And I read the John Higgs book, Stranger Than We Can Imagine, which is about sort of like the, the, the byways of the, the 20th century and the sort of thinking that led to a lot of what we're discussing in terms of, well, essentially, I'm getting this is my long way around of saying he writes about Jack Parsons and oh, does he? Okay. And he writes about Jack Parsons and he writes about how 
many of the people that were involved in rocketry and the idea of uh, leaving the planet in some form, right, uh, in, in, a, in a craft. You know, a lot of those people were motivated by um, uh, outsider thinking or, you know, all, all sorts of stuff. But Parsons, of course, the sort of the father of modern rocketry in America, being an avowed occultist is uh, just something that I'm sure many people don't know. There was a TV show about it a couple of years back. I don't think it quite reached the wide audience the way that one might have hoped. But what was it about Parsons? No doubt you had been familiar with him for a very, very long time. What was the impetus to dive deep on Parsons? Well, I it was a really interesting question because he's absent from uh, cult America. And I view that as, as an oversight on, on my part. I hope to do an anniversary edition of that book in the future, and that is a um, mistake that I will address uh, in in the anniversary edition and, and provide some of that material. I fell in love with Jack as I was researching his life and working on the book, and I did not expect to. I can tell you straight out, I did not expect to. I thought, well, you know, Jack, you know, brilliant guy, libertine, came in contact uh, with Crowley. Well, that's okay. L. Ron Hubbard, well, less okay in my book. Shows pretty <laughs> fucking bad judgment. Um, uh, you know, I just wasn't sure that I would uh, would find in Jack someone other than a brilliant vagabond. But I found someone that I fell in love with. And the reason I fell in love with him is because he was a true seeker at a moment in our culture when things were less calcified. So, for example, you were saying that a lot of the people in early rocketry had some pretty far out ideas either uh, metaphysical or civilizational. I mean, they wanted to free us from the cradle of Earth, and that's pretty radical. So Jack, early in his career, <laughs> fell in with a group of both scientists and sci-fi fans who were Marxists, and that caused him a lot of trouble later in life, caused him a lot of trouble with the defense establishment in this country, much more so than his occultism. Um, you know, after the war, he had real problems, and getting security clearances and such. And nowadays, uh, and this has been true for a long time, um, the sci-fi world, insofar as its political, tends towards um, Randianism, tends towards libertarianism, tends towards uh, ardent materialism. And to find somebody who could be a rocket scientist and a Marxist and an occultist, it's very interesting. And it turns me on because, because I just love the calico quality of it. I love the lack of a calcified absolutism that you find in Jack's career. He was a true seeker. And as he worked through these different aspects of his career, and I consider his career a success because I feel that Jack, as he approached the end, which obviously came far, far too soon, um, did he blow himself up? Was he murdered? You know, these are questions that people get very emotional over, and I have no empiricism to settle the matter. I presume he blew himself up, but I recognize and I give voice to the fact that Marjorie Cameron, his wife, yeah. felt he was murdered, and that has to be noted. But in any case, um, these things very often are are, are positions of, of sentiment more than some sort of empirical evidence. In any case, um, Jack came to an evolutionary point uh, just before his death, and I wish he had been around longer to explore it, where he began to ask himself a question that I've been asking myself now for several years, which is, is there a simpler road within occultism? Is occultism um, 
perhaps excessively encumbered by ceremony, rite, ritual, liturgy. Chaos magic freed us from some of that without question. Uh, the Golden Dawn, uh, which I read about uh, extensively in the book, the Golden Dawn did a lot of brilliant things, but they brought a great deal of rank, initiation, hierarchy, liturgy, symbol, ceremony into the mix. They also, many of the pioneers of the Golden Dawn, created what I view as a very stratified split between white and black magic. There was an Abrahamic point of view that was very deeply ingrained in these Victorian thinkers. And as radical as they were, that Abrahamic point of view presented them with perimeters that mm -hmm. that that they rarely went beyond or, or questioned. So I think the Golden Dawn did many, many wonderful things, but it also brought a lot of encumbrances to bear. And however much Crowley insisted that he was uh, came along to destroy the Golden Dawn tradition with a sledgehammer, he too inherited a lot of it. Less the black and white magic divide, but but very much the, the liturgy, the ceremony, the ritual. And, and Austin Osmond's Fair freed us from some of that, but it still lingers quite heavily as it does throughout the larger spiritual and religious culture. And Jack kept pushing and asking, can we make it simpler? Can we make it simpler? And he broke with Crowley by the end. There were mutual reasons for it. Um, their relationship got very, very complicated. And he felt very disappointed in Crowley because instead of standing by Jack when Jack made some missteps and bad decisions, Crowley, as was his want, condemned him as a fool and 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 broke with him. And I think that was a mistake on Crowley's part. I think he dispensed with a man who could have been one of his one of his greatest disciples for the remaining years of Crowley's life. And 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 for the remaining years of Jack's life, he reacted against the stratification in the liturgy and the ceremony and the thickness of the Crowley system. And he wrote very explicitly about wanting to find a form of magic that's simpler. And that's ignited my search for the past few years. That's part of why I'm so interested in ESP research, for example, which I write about in the book, because if we have warranted belief, warranted belief that there's an extra physical dimension to the psyche, then it begs the question of whether intention, perhaps, is all the magic we need. And, and that may be imperfect, and that, that may be inconsistent, but so are our ceremonial systems, for that matter. And, and I want to experiment with that, and I'm, I'm deeply interested in that, and I felt like I found a a blood brother in Jack, so to speak, yeah. in that he was interested in that. So I judge Jack's career success. Uh, I'm sorry, you know, that he got snookered by by Harvard. Maybe it was just necessary to teach Jack lessons in human nature. I've had some of the same lessons myself. Uh, I'm sorry that he died so young. I wish he had stuck around, but I do think there was an evolutionary arc in his life, and and I think he was a figure of greatness, and and I love him. Yeah, yeah, that's fascinating stuff, and he is a a, a tremendously interesting figure, and it's great to have your uh, lens applied to him. Mitch, as we wrap up, I wanted to 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 touch a little bit. Something that has come up each time that we've talked is extraterrestrials or aliens, UFOs, UAP, all the stuff. I'm curious for you. I know that there's always been some careful consideration about whether or not that falls under the umbrella of the occult. Um, there are a lot of people who have very defined feelings about this stuff. Uh, I know lots of people who would. I know lots of people who wouldn't put it under that that banner. But 
it certainly, if not strictly an occult thing, you know, speaks to the barriers or the or the 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 limits of our understanding. And so I'm curious for you, I've always sensed or picked up on a sort of Jacques Vallée, Vallée-ian, is that a way to say it? Uh, approach, yeah. <laughs> yeah, a, a sort of a, an approach that you that you seem to to fall a little bit more uh, on the side of perhaps these are interdimensional objects or something like that, which to me makes the most sense. The idea of nuts and bolts, spacecraft and occupants and all of the stuff to me that is the hardest thing to swallow for some strange reason. You know, uh, my yep. brain can't quite wrap around it being like that. I'm curious what you make of some of the stuff, some of the discussions that are being had now and, and what you think we could potentially do to broaden those conversations and make them maybe a little more useful. Cause right now they feel so circular. Does that make sense? Totally. Um, one of the things I write in the book is that we can't, properly use the term occult to describe everything that's weird or novel in the spiritual culture or in general. Sure. And and for that reason, I, I define occult very clearly at the outset of the book as uh, 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 this, these kinds of pre-Christian faiths that were wiped away and rediscovered uh, in fragments in the Renaissance, at yeah. which point the term occult or hidden got applied to them. And I, I think it's very important to be clear about our definitions. At the same time, I used to regard UFOs as much more uh, tangential or very distantly adjunct to occult concerns than I do today. I've, I've changed my outlook, and I spend uh, the, the the final pages of the book uh, um, exploring this. I think there is a convergence between inquiry into the occult and inquiry into um, UFOs, UAPs, and the anomalous for the very reason that you've alluded. Uh, Jacques Vallée's work has been a very big influence on me, and I think Jacques' uh, proposition uh, that we have to consider the interdimensional possibility with respect to UFOs makes more and more sense uh, as time passes since he first proposed that around 1969. Uh, he may not have been the very first person to, to, to make that proposition, but he certainly argued for it in the most lasting and eloquent way. And, and I think that we are in this peculiar position in the 21st century where, dig this, dig this, this is what a weird world we live in. We actually have um, better uh, models, and these are just models, these are just conceptual models, not reality itself, but 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 theories of reality, but, but well-developed. We have better models for interdimensionality than we do for extraterrestriality, because the distances that a craft would have to travel are so vast yeah they're they're almost literally unthinkable and we actually have thanks to 90 some odd years of quantum mechanics experiments and now conceptualizations like string theory better models of interdimensionality and for that matter better proof better proof of interdimensionality that i would say we do for extraterrestriality and 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 one need only go back to einstein einstein in his theories of time-space, uh, raised the proposition, now proven, that time bends in certain conditions. Linear, linear time is not an absolute. Bends in conditions of extreme velocity, bends in conditions of extreme gravity. And the fact is, and I laugh when I say this, because it's so outrageous, but for the fact that it's true. Astronauts in our own era, although they're moving nowhere near the velocity of light, right. actually do display 
minute reductions in the aging process. So yes, Einstein was correct. And these are not theories anymore. These are, these are actual natural laws and they are so violative of everything that we experience in day-to-day life where time linear time feels overwhelmingly persuasive yeah and so then you you take a look at um all the data that's emerged from um quantum theory now listen the schrodinger's cat experiment in which a cat can uh, be dead or a lot dead alive simultaneously in this thought experiment this now goes back to the mid-1930s um the many worlds uh, uh, theory about I- infinitude um existing all around us and becoming localized only at the point of measurement that so-called many worlds theory which is the next step in the schrodinger's cat um proposition uh, goes back to the 1950s in fact neville goddard uh, one of my favorite mystical figures was talking about it not using the same vocabulary no, in yeah. the late 40s incredibly enough um something i tried to call to the attention of my friends in the quantum physics world yeah. um who i am convinced they're going to be reading neville before before long <laughs> hold me to that you know and uh they read stanley kubrick um yeah they should be reading neville goddard um and so uh, Stanley Kubrick, uh, Arthur C. Clarke. Okay, I, I, I would uh, say, you know, yeah, yeah. watch but him, they would, read him. <laughs> they ought to read Kubrick too. But, uh, uh, you know, they read they read Clarke, they read they read Asimov, uh, they read Heinlein, they ought to be reading Neville. Yeah. Um, he's shocked to find that he's conceptually giving expression to the many worlds theory without that vocabulary in the late 40s. Anyway, the point that I'm making is there is an a rational imperative behind all this. We we know that that time is not absolute. We 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 know that we need different theories of reality than Isaac Newton brought, and Newton would be the first one to applaud this. He'd be the first one to applaud this. Um, now that we have the data that we do from from quantum mechanics, these explorations have grown so um, uh, deep. And 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 the evidence is so abounding on certain scales of reality, primarily but not exclusively the particle scale, that we we need to make room within our standard physicalist models of the world. They don't hold up anymore. Materialism uh, simply doesn't hold up a- anymore. We occupy, it seems to me, these different intersections of time. All I've mentioned is very mainstream stuff. I haven't even gotten into (laughs) psychical research, which is incredible on its own grounds. Another mainstream area of the search is uh, neuroplasticity, where we have evidence from brain scans that what we call thoughts, whatever a thought actually is, affect the biological matter of the brain. And these are not speculations. So we know that that physicality is not the strict name of the game. And we know that time bends in certain circumstances. And we know if we take seriously, as I do, the data coming from psychical research, that the psyche seems to be able to um, glean information outside of the boundaries of linearity, all of which points to questions of uh, interdimensionality, um, which is spoken to in string theory. So here we are, right? We've got all this testimony of UFOs. We've got UFOs on high-def video. We've got UFOs on radar. Whatever they may be, there's some engineered phenomena. What is it? Is it a super weapon? Is it this? Is it that? Well, we don't know. But it behooves us if if we're going to take seriously 
the extraterrestrial thesis, which we should, to take seriously the interdimensional thesis for which we might actually have more evidence. That's just how weird our world is at this moment. So there is a convergence of conversation between people who are interested in the metaphysical uh, and people who are interested in these uh, questions of anomalies, uh, chief among them UFOs. Yeah, yeah, that's 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 wonderfully stated, and I think it's a great, great point. And the other thing that I like so much about you know you, I really love the the Robert Anton Robert Anton Wilson esque element of like there's a, you you have to you have to maintain enough wiggle room to uh, to take these things in and and strict understanding what does that even really mean you know like we don't always we often don't you know really uh possess the understanding that sometimes we're so certain that we do so i find the sort of like uh maintaining a i don't know stance can be so can be just so so crucial and that's been the one that i've tried to maintain as much as i can over these last couple months as we've seen you know conversation about ai you know, uh, extraterrestrials or UAPs or UFOs, it's clear that there's a a vast unknown on the periphery that culturally we're trying to give some sort of shape to or point at and say, this is this, you know? I don't know if that's AI. I mean, AI might be overstated claims by tech guys, right? But nonetheless, the way that we have begun to think about AI really speaks, I think, to some sort of... People want to know what is intelligence. Can we really, you know, like what yep. is thought? What are these things? These are these are stubborn questions, and we might not be on the verge of figuring them out. But if we're on the verge of opening our uh, self up to other possibilities, I think that might be. I keep forgetting. I've been wanting to quote it the entire show, and as we reach the end of the show, I have failed to remember who said it, but. Somebody said that an era can be considered over once its base, basic illusions are exhausted. And um, I'll put in the show notes who actually said it. But I've thought, I think a lot about that because not just on a metaphysical, but also on a cultural and relational level. Yeah. I think a lot of the old narratives are exhausted. A lot of the old forms don't serve us anymore and they don't serve. Uh, how we interact with each other or how we move forward. So I think we're in like real dire need of new ways of thinking. And so if there are calcified patterns to break up, now would be a good time to start breaking them up as we stare into a strange future, you know? I agree. And and Queen Victoria died in early 1901. I mean, remarkable timing. And yet, a lot of historians would say the Victorian era didn't really end until the First World War, right? Because it was the First World War that we saw the um, the advent of communism, the the real shattering of aristocracy throughout Europe as 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 a as an absolute political force. Um, movements that came to define uh, the 21st century in in myriad ways, culturally, politically, spiritually. So there was a lot building up to that. You know, you could say. Um, Darwinism unfolded during the Victorian era. Um, 
maybe some of uh, Jamesian and Freudian thought developed during the Victorian era, but it wasn't until World War I that we came to stare these things in the face and they became kind of primary reference points in our everyday lives. So we may be on the precipice of something very much like that right now. Some people say the the 20th century began um, with uh, with with World War One and ended with the fall of the Berlin Wall. Maybe that's true. Maybe the 21st, maybe the 20th century, uh, uh, as a as a as a human epoch, did end then, and we're living through without having any perspective on it. What's next? And and we just don't know. We don't know what it is. Um, but certainly, I would take seriously trends that are underway right now, because one observation that Newton made that does uh, stand up to the test of time, and by the way, Isaac Newton, as I referenced in the book, was deeply immersed in alchemy, made the first English translation that we know of, of the Emerald Tablet, remarkable figure, yeah. a magus, a modern magus in many ways himself. Newton uh, determined that an object in motion does not stop unless there's some reason for it to stop. Right. So stuff that's going down right now is not going to stop unless there's some reason why it stops. Uh, it doesn't give us a lot of perspective on on where we are, but certainly there's there's something in the air that suggests um, the decline of certain mythologies or illusions that that we previously held to. Certainly, materialism, the belief that matter creates itself, that everything is just a a a, a, a chemical uh, process, and that there's no other. Um, determinative factor, including the extra physical, that philosophy has failed. It's a very powerful philosophy and it's, it's successful culturally. Um, it's a very weird thing to watch. And I encourage uh, your listeners to watch for this because materialism, it holds sway in opinion-making media. It holds sway on campus. It, it holds sway um, within many areas of the culture, including on Wikipedia. But um, it's, it's intellectually at this juncture a failure because it doesn't cover the basis of life. Everything that we've just talked about in connection with um, UFOs, interdimensionality, this is not far out stuff. This is stuff you can read about in Scientific American, right. not a journal that's off to the fringes of American life. <laughs> and materialism does not cover this inquiry. So it's failed intellectually. Yeah. But it's dominant, and it will remain dominant, I suspect, for some time to come, culturally. That is probably an area where we're starting to see a changeover, uh, because that um, sentiment uh, is no longer um, successful as, yeah. as an operating philosophy for our culture. Yeah, yeah. Well, Mitch, thank you so much for taking the time to do this. It's been Pleasure. a blast as always. Thank you for being with us here on Transmissions. I appreciate it so much. And uh, as always, your questions move me in a lot of different directions. And thank you. Thanks for being with us once again. I'm Jason P. Woodbury. I produce, write, and host the show. Transmissions is edited by Andrew Horton. And our music comes from Frank Mastin, drawn from his incredible discography of gorgeous library music. Find more by visiting mastin.bandcamp.com. Art for this episode was created by Dakota Brown, and our show's executive producer is Justin Gage, Aquarium Drunkard's founder. Don't miss his radio program, The Aquarium Drunkard Show, on Sirius XMU, Channel 35, at 7 p.m. Pacific Time, each and every Wednesday night. 
Transmissions is part of the TalkHouse Podcast Network. Visit the TalkHouse for more interviews, fascinating reads, and podcasts. Next week on Transmissions, Buck Mink. Be well in the meantime. This transmission is concluded.